Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and today our guest is Professor Stephen Pincus. A professor of history at Yale, Professor Pincus teaches early modern British and European history. He is the author of Protestantism and Patriotism, Ideologies and the Making of English Foreign Policy, 1650 to 1668, and England's Glorious Revolution, 1688 to 89. He has also published numerous essays on the cultural, political, and intellectual history of early modern Britain. Today we'll be talking with Professor Pincus about his newest book called 1688, The First Modern Revolution. Welcome, Professor Pincus. I'm pleased to be here, Marilyn. In your newest book, which will be out in September, you retell in a significantly new way the um, story of the Glorious Revolution. What is the Glorious Revolution? So the Glorious Revolution uh, is an event in, uh, which took place normally in 16, normally considered to have, have happened in 1688 and 1689 in England, in which the old king, James II, who happened to have been a Catholic, was replaced by a new king, uh, William, and his wife, uh, who became Queen Mary II. And uh, Queen Mary actually happened to be the daughter uh, of James II. Um, and it's after William and Mary that, for example, the College of William and Mary uh, in Virginia is named. Okay, and what drew you to this topic? Um, the story of England's glorious revolution, um, uh, which for a long time had, had come to be seen as marking uh, England as, as perhaps the first modern nation or the uh, first modern uh, parliamentary uh, nation, um, was always told as an English story, mm -hmm. um, something in which there were English causes and narrowly English consequences. Um, and my previous work had um, convinced me of two things. One was that uh, uh, England very much was part of Europe in the 17th century as much as it's part of Europe in the 21st century, um, and that trying to understand developments within England in a narrowly English context missed a good part of the story. The second thing that my earlier work convinced me of was that in the 17th century, merchants and economics were an increasingly important part uh, of English political and social life. Um, and older accounts of the Glorious Revolution said nothing about merchants and nothing about economics. Okay, so how does your version of the revolution differ from what's in the books now? The normal story, the ubiquitous story of the Glorious Revolution is that England's revolution in 1688-89 was a conservative revolution, a sensible revolution, an unrevolutionary revolution, something which bears no resemblance to uh, uh, major revolutions like the French Revolution, the American Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, the Russian Revolution. Um, uh, and. Uh, uh, my argument is that that's exactly wrong, um, that uh, England's, England's revolution in 1688-89 was in fact the first modern revolution. It was very much a radically transformative revolution uh, with everything that came along with it. It was a violent revolution, it was a socially divisive revolution, and it was a revolution which involved large, huge segments of the overall English population. Okay, and um, how did you do your research? Um, well, the last major work 
on England's Glorious Revolution based on, on uh, thorough archival research was done by uh, Thomas Babington Macaulay um, in the second quarter of the 19th century. Um, and it stood to reason that there was a lot of material that became available since then. Um, and it turned out that there, were, uh, there was a huge amount of material. So I went, uh, uh, visited a range of European archives. Um, I traveled to local record offices, um, uh, local depositories of, of manuscripts um, that had not existed in the 19th century. I visited uh, 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 collections of, of business materials which weren't fully available uh, in the 19th century. And I also used the wealth of materials that had uh, in various ways uh, uh, made their ways into North American archives, both in Canada uh, and in the U.S., again, uh, which British historians have traditionally ignored. I see. So I imagine that's one of the reasons why the old narrative has been um, so widely accepted for so long. Are there any other reasons? Well, the, the old narrative was accepted for a long time um, because there were a number of people invested in telling a story that England was not like the rest of Europe or like the rest of the world. Um, so the the key moments of the telling of the story of uh, England's revolution of 1688-89 uh, were in 1848-1849, the period in which the, uh, Europe was convulsed with revolutions. So uh, Thomas Babington Macaulay was invested in saying that England wasn't like uh, uh, like these other places on the continent where there could be a radical and destructive revolution, that England had what he said uh, uh, was a saving revolution which prevented it from having, in the 17th century, which prevented it from having a violent revolution in the 19th century. Um, uh, uh, an earlier moment uh, in which the story was told was um, by Edmund Burke when he was uh, during the revolution, uh, the 1789 revolution in France, in which he again said, England had a sensible and glorious revolution, whereas uh, France had a violent and destructive revolution. And the final important phase of the telling of the story was the 1930s, uh, when George Macaulay Trevelyan um, uh, wanted to distinguish uh, English political culture from the, from the political culture that was leading to fascism in Spain and in Italy and to Nazism in Germany. So in all three key moments, the English were invested in telling a story about themselves, which was to suggest how different they were uh, uh, from continental Europeans. I see. And in doing your research, uh, were there any, any um, elements that surprised you? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest surprise was to discover how important India and the empire more broadly was uh, in the run-up and the causes and in the consequences of the revolution. So none of the books about the, uh, uh, none of the myriad books about the, uh, the glorious revolution say anything about the fact that James II declared war on the Mughal Empire in India in 1687, um, and that war proved to be a disastrous failure, um, and how excited and interested most English people were about uh, India and the empire more broadly, um, and how, in fact, the revolution of 1688-89 completely transformed England's relationship with India and also with the West Indies and, 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 and North America. Um, so that okay. was a real Okay, can surprise. you expand on how, how was it changed? How was the relationship sure. changed? So, um, James II was um, uh, uh, a very modern and forward-looking monarch who thought that England's future as a major European player could be secured by creating a massive authoritarian 
territorial empire overseas, both in the East Indies and what's now India and Indonesia, and in the West Indies, meaning both the Caribbean and North America. So he tried to consolidate, centralize, control, and use the revenues from this empire to finance a huge standing army uh, in England. Now, England had traditionally been a place where there was no regular standing army, and James created one of the most professional and efficient armies uh, that Europe had seen. It had it between 40 and 50,000 men, whereas England traditionally had had an army of maybe 2,000 men. Um, so um, it was this very sort of strong authoritarian army which, which, he, uh, which he created based on this authoritarian uh, empire overseas. And what happened at the revolution was to transform uh, uh, the English empire, the British empire, from being uh, an authoritarian ter territorial empire into being a commercial empire, one where the emphasis was exclusively on trade and to transform England itself from an agrarian society into a manufacturing society. So without the Glorious Revolution, in my view, there would have been a very different British Empire in the 18th and 19th century. And without the Glorious Revolution in the late 17th century, there would have been no Industrial Revolution in the late 18th and 19th centuries. Thank you very much for being here with us today. And we'll look forward to your book in September. OK, it's been a pleasure. For more information about Professor Pincus and his work, please visit our website at yale.edu backslash Macmillan Report. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report, made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale. Mm -hmm.